From Here to California, 1. Future worlds made in Germany were left unattended during the Cold War reception of science fiction. Then, beginning in the 1980s, the metropolis look was in our faces, in films, music videos, and the redesign of Disneyland's Tomorrowland. It is this watershed of return, rather than the decade or so that lies between them, which gives divergent styles to the first movies made of the American superheroes. In Donner's Superman the Movie, the city called Metropolis, is as modern as 1970s New York, and the hero's secret bachelor pad from Krypton is of the same era, but befitting a Las Vegas wedding chapel. While Gotham City in Tim Burton's Batman belongs by its gadgets to the present, even the future, to look at it is to pass through a relay of Lang's film sets. The return of German science fiction left a fork in the look of the future between 1950s modernism with Futurama accents, the original style of Tomorrowland, and the Art Deco future in the past, a souvenir of New York made in Germany. Even the 2010 film Inception, ostensibly free to dream up any alternate dream realities, was stuck in the turnstile of alternation between two choices, James Bond or Metropolis. It is no surprise that Blade Runner, Ridley Scott's adaptation of Philip K. Dick's Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, belonged to the avant-garde of this blast from the past. Dick's collected work inherited the metabolization of Germany in science fiction from the establishment of German science fiction as the transformation of the wound of gravity and grave into the wonder or miracle of takeoff to Germany as the problem and object of integration in the post-war future worlds of science fiction. In his 1964 novel, The Simulacra, Dick confronts us with a new entity, the USEA, the future state of cohabitation of the United States, or California, with Germany. If there is a bicoastal dialectic whereby symptoms of Nazi German provenance wash up onto the coast, then Dick brings it to its crisis point with the prospect of Germany's post-war integration so close to home. In Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep and Ubik, the difficulty of this integration was carried forward as the ongoing social problem of psychopathy, in which the failure to empathize and mourn tests the limits of tolerance. Martian Time Slip and the Simulacra offered two perspectives on one future world seen now from Mars, now from Earth. The future belongs to America or California, but with Germany and Israel as its most proximate, overlapping, even internal neighbors. The first Californian co-op housing unit to be built on Mars bears the name AMWEB, an acronym standing in lieu of translation for Alle Menschen werden Brüder. While the theory behind the therapy is immersed in German, the treatment of schizophrenia on Mars is conducted in American at hospitals in New Israel. In the off-world, which faces incipient psychosis as the greatest risk and chronic psychosis as a new social contingency, the autistic schizophrenic 10-year-old Manfred 
whose family emigrated from West Germany, is the one to watch and rehabilitate. The Californian settler Jack Bolin, a repairman and recovering schizophrenic, charged with building a delay chamber for the translation of Manfred's perceptions, undergoes the task of society's project of integration as a painful proximity to the youth, especially on the inside. While working to add a lapse in time to the boy's sensorium, he begins to undergo a relapse. Manfred suffers from premature onset of empathy and capacity for grief, the condition that amounts to a paradoxical intervention in Dick's regimen of testing leaves Manfred wide open to every unconscious thought crossing the minds around him. But what he sees via the fast-forwarding of his time sense is the tomb world, the ongoing prospect of entropy's omnipresence. Whereas on Mars, schizophrenia is rampant, on Earth, psychosis retains an endopsychic privilege held by one figure at a time. In the simulacra, Congrosian is the identified psychotic. Holomai's existence, a new dimension in psychiatry and psychology, a collection of studies by practitioners of existential analysis, first made available to the English-only readership Ludwig Binswanger's The Case of Ellen West, Dick's source for the image of the tomb world, which he used over and again as an interface between psychotic delusional states and the relationship to mourning. Congrosian, himself a close reader of the literature on psychosis, cites Minkowski, Kuhn, and Binswanger as among the few who could help him if they were still around. In the simulacra, German is not the USEA's second language, but the sacred one that supplies all the key terms governing society. For this post-war state that contains Californians and Germans in strained cooperation and includes representatives of Israel in foreign policy deliberations internal to this cohabitation, the split-level social division is between the G's and the B's, the Geheimnisträger, those privy to the secret, or literally those who carry the secret, and the Befehlsträger, those who carry out commands. The G's know or carry a double secret. The two leaders of USEA, Der Alte, as Conrad Adenauer was known, and First Lady Nicole Thibodeau, who was modeled on Jackie Kennedy, are not only mere figureheads, but also fakes. Der Alte is an android whose replacement with each new election upsets the whole balance of power in the ensuing rivalry over the commission to build the next one. Nicole Thibodeau, who is long dead, has since been played by actresses selected for their resemblance to the original. The USEA incorporates two date marks then, the opening season of the German Federal Republic under Adenauer's direction, and the Kennedy presidency, famous for the stamp of identification accorded West Germany on the occasion of wounding division at the high point of the economic miracle or Wirtschaftswunder. In name, the post-war miracle resonated with the earlier transformations of wounds of lack or loss into the wonders of German science fiction, which underwent realization as the Wunderwaffen, the miracle weapons of World War II. 
when in the 1950s these miracles were reclaimed in name for the onset of the repair of wounds inflicted during the Nazi era, the science factional track of the once projected exploration of the outer limits was to be continued by the space race and the Californian culture industry. Both syndications first came together in 1955 in two Disneyland TV shows starring Banoff and Brown and dedicated to the Tomorrowland of interplanetary travel. NASA was founded in the late 1950s after the U.S. was back in the race following setbacks that were reversed under von Braun's new direction. Responding to U.S. taunts that Soviet advances in rocket technology rode on the backs of captured Nazi scientists, Khrushchev declared that Americans had no excuse for their space impotence since the mastermind behind the Nazi V-2 rockets was at their disposal. Unstuck by this doubling of the negative, von Braun's post-war career began to take off until he could be found sharing photo ops with President Kennedy, who gave NASA the direction and funding to land on the moon in the immediate future. The launching of von Braun's American career as pop culture star internalized turbulence, as so often is the case in acts of idealization, although the volatility his case for mascot status had to pack away was historically unique. On the Disney shows in the early 1950s, von Braun's stage fright played to a double audience. In the studio's recent past, while Walt Disney alone received Lenny Riefenstahl in 1938 on her state visit to Hollywood to show and promote Olympia, his own technical staff refused to project her film. Nervous as though he at least felt he was getting away with something or leaving something unaddressed, von Braun nevertheless worked hard to help establish in and with the Disney shows a continuous, upbeat history of invention. Throughout his career, von Braun demonstrated highly focused industry in turning over vast sums of debt into the prospect of outer space exploration, which promised the unification of peoples and promoted his own integration inside and out. As soon as von Braun arrived, he recognized that in the United States, a space program could be funded only upon becoming part of popular culture. He tried his hand at science fiction, conceiving and commencing what he called his technical tale in 1946. He packed into the fiction of a mission to Mars endless mathematical and technical calculations as the testimony given by experts to governmental agencies from which support for the Mars voyage had to be obtained. When his novel was turned down, von Braun turned to popular science, a genre in which he published numerous projections of future voyages based on the science and technology of the day. The Disney shows animate text and illustrations of some of these books that von Braun used to advertise not only the possibility of space travel, but its funding in the first place. The second Disney show starring von Braun folded Kurt Laswitz's 1897 novel Two Planets, the ancestral work of German science fiction, into its official timeline of imaginative projections of travel to Mars. 
Whether this was under his direction or brought about by one of the emigres on the staff, von Braun gave his endorsement for the first English-language edition of Leswitz's novel in 1971. I shall never forget how I devoured this novel with curiosity and excitement as a young man. From this book, the reader can obtain an inkling of that richness of ideas at the twilight of the 19th century upon which the technological and scientific progress of the 20th is based. Lesfitz's two planets projected Martians as benign figures who, like friendly ghosts from an idealized cultural past, bring to earth the news that the foundation for limitless cultural and intellectual innovation constitutes a transformation of the struggle for survival of the fittest into an acceptance of the fit with technology. Because Earthlings can't rise above the brutal view of survival, their instructors from Mars suffer from the prolonged contact and then contract Earth fever, which makes them short-tempered, arrogant, corrupt, even violent, and in desperate need of treatment back home. The Martian view of techno-leisure time as the setting for perfectibility of our evolutionary legacy of intelligent life is unique in early science fiction. The tradition that prevailed, beginning with H.G. Wells's The War of the Worlds in 1898, sees technological progress via the Martians as a calamitous agency of evolutionary regression. 2. What remained largely unaddressed in post-World War II science fiction, as indeed in the public sphere at large until some turning point in the 1980s, an absence the nervous von Braun on Disney TV tries to pass beyond in the pitch and toss for space exploration, was the Holocaust. In his 203 foreword to George Orwell's 1984, Thomas Pynchon identifies the place of this absence in the work written in 1948, the date mark the title preserves by Metathesis. There is some felt reticence, as if, with so many other deep issues to worry about, Orwell would have preferred that the world not be presented the added inconvenience of having to think much about the Holocaust. The novel may even have been his way of redefining a world in which the Holocaust did not happen. If 1984 passes over the Holocaust, then this motivates a reading of the doomed future of Newspeak as a kind of natural history exhibit of the extinct possibility of a victorious post-war Nazi world. The import of the protagonist's decision to begin keeping a journal lies in the past tense of the closing appendix on Newspeak. The project of Big Brother is struck out in the turning of the diary page. More than the pen, what is mightier than the delusional world in 1984 is the word given in adolescence. The salient feature of Newspeak, the amalgamation of abbreviations and acronyms, is at the same time the very essence of linguistic metabolization before which the ideological goal of language's neutralization pulls up short and surrenders. Big Brother's death sentence is issued in or by adolescence as the original occupation or cathexis of language 
in the mix of the buffering metabolization of the techno-massificatory pressures that are upon us. The original authorial upsurge of personalized language in adolescence isn't a phase or phrase that passes. Its essence continues as jargon in scientific and theoretical work, or as the punning of news speak. In von Braun's science fiction novel, Project Mars, a technical tale, completed and translated into English by 1948, but not published until 2006, the preparations for the voyage are staged in amusement park-like settings that already project the Disney TV show's simulation of a voyage to Mars. Even a Martian landscape was portrayed on the rolling carpet that passed before the eyes of the pilot as he synthetically flew along. In German science fiction, Rocket Flight, which takes over where the pilot takes off as an autopilot merged with his machine in flight, is the ultimate android double, while in post-World War II science fiction, as already in von Braun's technical tale, a new android interface begins to fold out of the onboard computers that, when supplied with the right tape for the emergency scenario, can steer the spaceship clear. In 2001, A Space Odyssey, Hal's psychopathic forwarding of deprivation twists free internally from the psychotic techno-doubling of Hale, the missing mother preserved in her as metropolis. As one side of a defensive split, the android in German science fiction always introduced metabolic representation of the two be excluded in the first place woman and the same place reproduction and death as the objective of technologization. What the post-war shift in reception adds to the mass psychological transmission of the android passing through it is adolescence in the family setting. Adolescence, the time-based version of psychopathy, is the container in which we must face the psycho as our double at close quarters. The android comes to draw the distinction we hold fast to in this tight corner between psychopathy and empathy. The rebound from this outer rim of containment introduces the problem android, who, subjected as famnexto member to the very loneliness and boredom androids were built to deflect, grows up adolescent going on psychopathic. On Mars, alienated androids take drugs, consume pre-science factual science fiction, drop out of their family settings, and follow their psychovisionary leaders. Whereas German science fiction explored psychotic outer space via the android dyad, post-war science fiction that interjects Germany evaluates psychopathic violence in the family and group settings of androids as teens. It is possible to link the victory of the Allies over Nazi Germany, as well as their follow-up success in winning the immediate peace, to the promotion of differentiating group or in-group formats in lieu of mass psychology. In Nazi Germany, television was installed in public places that admitted up to 300 viewers. In the U.S., however, the direction was taken from TV to introduce as a group psychological format the circle of family and friends that comfortably wraps around the set for optimal interaction. 
This cultural difference came to be reflected in publications by U.S. psychoanalysts and military psychologists toward the end of the war, advising what were the best conditions for the successful return home of the soldiers, which in time would also be the conditions to be met by civilians undergoing family systems therapy. Werner von Braun got the message that the related format of teamwork could draw his Faustian striving onward. Von Braun understood that a total effort can count as realizable via a linking up of the different agencies in the U.S. that would cooperate in the event of space travel. In the introduction to his 1952 The Mars Project, which contained the projected science and math separated out from his abandoned science fiction novel, von Braun summarized the difference between spaceflight as entertained in science fiction and spaceflight as realizable now. The central figure in these stories was usually the heroic inventor. Surrounded by a little band of faithful followers, he secretly built a mysteriously streamlined space vessel in a remote backyard. Then, at the hour of midnight, he and his crew soared into the solar system to brave untold perils, successfully, of course. Von Braun summarizes Fritz Lang and Thea von Habu's Woman in the Moon as the acme of these developments, making the symptomatic picture of German science fiction more complete. The central figures are joined together by various aberrant mental states, from traumatic neurosis to psychosis, and they leave behind no one to mourn them. What the future holds is teamwork. Since the actual development of the long-range liquid rocket, it has been apparent that true space travel can only be achieved by the coordinated might of scientists, technicians, and organizers belonging to very nearly every branch of modern science and industry. Von Braun's Project Mars, a technical tale, commences in 1980 California, which is now part of a global government established after the third and final war. Not the atom bomb itself, but its launching from a satellite orbiting the moon put an end to warfare. Because of the satellite's role in the war, the peace on Earth was at the same time the symbol of the final victory of man over space. For his fictional encounter between Earthlings and Martians, von Braun brings together the two receptions of our future projected upon outer space, those of Laswitz and Wells, as the precondition for the future world's integration. Whether it is the early 1980s or the late 1940s, the post-war era gives up war for space exploration. The explorers encounter and acquire on Mars a refined technology that prompted Martians long ago to abandon all regional concepts, including racial prejudice, national or local patriotism, and nostalgia. So integrated had their economy become that any trouble afflicting one locality was immediately painful to the entire planet. Earth has only begun to benefit from peace. On Mars, the Earthlings learn that a long burgeoning of culture will follow, but that in time the inner urge to action that drives invention will grow lethargic under global conditions of standardization. 
But the cultural pessimism of one Martian host gives way before evidence that the lassitude on Mars has been shaken up by contact with Earth. Now another brand of advice can be given in response to an Earth-bound pessimism that the Earthling commander cites from recent terrestrial history. In the final war, mankind had come so close to the abyss of universal cultural suicide that many Earthling thinkers proclaimed that technology bore an eternal curse and that naught but a return to a simple bucolic existence of self-determination could preserve humanity from utter self-destruction. But a Martian sage warns against the very thought of a return to nature. There can be no turning back for any civilization which has once pinned its faith to the advance of technology. 3. Germany is our problem is the title of Henry Morgenthau's 1945 book version of his proposal from the year before that post-war Germany be pastoralized to ensure world peace. Carrying forward the sense of defenselessness in the face of unstoppable psychopathy, the book opens with Corporal Adolf Hitler weeping with hysterical rage on his hospital bed the day Germany signs the armistice. Then it's the next sentence, and it's 22 years later. It's Hitler again, this time beaming and strutting for the newsreels, jump-cutting his sense of loss with its reversal. What had happened to the world's high hopes of peace, Morgenthau asks. So many precautions had been taken to prevent the Germans from breaking out again, but something must have been omitted. Morgenthau's proposed intervention proved short-lived, however, once the problem it solved became part of the proposal. Critics in the States calculated that the aftermath of Morgenthau's plan was that at least 20 million Germans would have to go. It is this prospect of mass murders renewal through sentencing of Germany, more than the immediate shift of the total war fronts to the new dividing line of the Cold War, that led to the project of Germany's integration in the post-war Western world. It was indeed the Cold War, however, that diverted the attention of the victors from the conditions Jewish survivors brought to the peace. Under no pressure from the Allies, Konrad Adenauer pushed through the policy of restitution that the German Federal Republic negotiated in the early 1950s with Israel. It counts as the premier and most lasting foreign policy of the post-war world. From within its perspective of restitution, the continued existence of the two post-war states could only be projected in tandem. It was as traumatic neurotics that a line of reception awaited survivors of the Holocaust who qualified. This specialized area of evaluation was up and running on a massive scale since the World War I epidemic of shell shock. In both world wars, it was soldiers first, then women, children, and teens on the home front. That survivors of Nazi persecution were summoned to undergo a screening process administered according to insurance standards of suspicion gave rise to a rejection of the restitution policy as re-traumatization. The search for an adequate relationship of and to restitution had to find alternatives to pre-existing models, in other words, pension evaluation for psychological casualties of war, 
or war reparations between states. When an interruption of professional development as developmental problem under duress was added to categories for compensation, the alternative notion of good productivity was introduced, not as an injunction to be productive, but as a measure of deprivation, the others as one's own. In this way, restitution inadvertently but inevitably provided a language evaluation that former perpetrators of and heirs to psychopathic violence could recognize and use to address deprivation and loss without laying claim to ethical cleansing. With its introduction, restitution delivered the family value of adolescent promise from Nazi mass psychologization to the victims to be integrated as applicants for the correction of the recent past. That inequities in the protection of productivity could be corrected, symbolically, Adenauer stressed, allowed post-war Germany to inherit German history as the history of this inalienable right. If it is true, as is generally claimed, that the policy of restitution was intrinsic to the Wirtschaftswunder, then the recovery at the foundation of the German Federal Republic happened not in spite of, but because of the commitment to productivity as the standard of deprivations, measure, and repair. The capacity for mourning, the undeclared but pressing objective of the industry of outer space transport, which is overshot by the rocket's unimpeded progress through continuous history, is brought closer in the simulacra through time travel. By its trailblazing exploration and construction of alternate realities, time travel is science fiction's own internal simulacrum. Time travel is the inner world of space exploration, and space exploration is the external reality in which time travel studies and contains itself. Time travel moves in the orbit of testing and mourning where Melanie Klein situated our all-important relationship to the inner world. As the safety zone of internalized good objects, this inner world must take the brunt of the impact of traumatic loss that before it can be individually addressed or redressed, awaits the shoring up of the very foundations of this afterlife. What the external world is good for is that it provides a less fantasy-muddled version of reality that the inner world can use as a control in the testing and resecuring of its reserve of posthumous relations. In the simulacra, then, time travel takes over where the fetish function of outer space transport leaves off. Before it recognizes itself as science fiction, time travel functions as the essence of Christian and Oedipal fantasies. The overriding daydream wish that time travel would appear to fulfill is the circumvention of the present tense of ongoing tensions through the more perfect union between the idealized past and the future. Fantasies of attending one's own development from conception onward rehearse and repeat the ultimate fantasy, the death of death. Projected upon history, time travel could reenact the Civil War or World War II to bring about one's own private happy ending. But these illusions of time travel are ultimately not supported in the simulacra. An Israeli who hides out in the counterculture, 
Although all along he is the behind-the-scenes head of the USEA's government, Bertolt Galtz, is the media meister of time travel. He was long since back there at the time of his birth and onward into childhood, guarding himself, training himself, crooning over his child self, Bertolt Galtz had become, in effect, his own parent. When an assassin takes aim in the present and fires, Galtz simply drops dead. And when the First Lady and the Israeli Foreign Minister try negotiating with Göring a separate peace for the Jews in exchange for Nazi German victory, the Reichsmarschall, who has been brought back from the past on a time trip, is unable to think outside the box that claims him. His execution in the future does not even produce a ripple of change in the present. Indeed, von Lessinger, who invented time travel technology during the foundation of the German Californian state, warned that there were two exceptions to the enhanced surveillance that his technology provided. One, any psychic or psychomedium like Congrosian, and two, the Third Reich. I think that von Lessinger was right in his final summation. No one should go near the Third Reich. When you deal with psychotics, you're drawn in. You become mentally ill yourself. And yet, unceasing industry goes into the attempted manipulation of boundary concept Nazi Germany via von Lessinger's time travel technology. Hitler's assassination is attempted many times over, and on one occasion, Hitler even receives 21st century psychiatric treatment. In their attempts to remove the Holocaust and lose the losses, Time travelers who cannot but run up against the limit built into the technology would appear to be in reality training to abandon redemptive fantasy and recognize the limits of reparation and integration. In time, then, the responsibility to and for the dead, mourning's ethical imperative, comes up from behind the limitation von Lessinger programmed into the very time travel that turns the denial. Four. At the height of the Nazi German threat to the UK, Melanie Klein undertook the analysis of the 10-year-old Richard, which, though it was condensed to fit the span of evacuation from the air war, ended up, in Klein's estimation, the best demo of her analytic innovations. Narrative of a Child Analysis, as she titled the document, is also her final completed work, prepared for publication on her deathbed. Here, the work of integration, reduced to its essential incompletion, requires that at least the two wars be brought into some kind of relationship. Debt or guilt must be expended on the work of repair, which is brought back as hopefulness, even happiness. As the wish to restore came more and more to the fore, the patient became gradually able to face and integrate his destructive impulses, while greater tolerance towards other people as well as towards his own shortcomings developed. He no longer felt compelled to turn away from destroyed objects, but could experience compassion for them. The war Little Richard brought to session and reenacted as primal scenes was also the external war he followed and studied in the radio news broadcasts and three daily newspapers. He was Jewish and knew that for him there could be only one outcome to the war. 
But that didn't stop him from goose-stepping up and down the office and giving the Hitler salute. It didn't stop Klein from interpreting the bad Hitler daddy penis inside him. Far more difficult and consequential than identification with Hitler was Richard's consideration of sharing the work of repair with the destroyed enemy. This was shown, for instance, when he regretted the damage done to Berlin and Munich, and, at another occasion, when he became identified with the sunk Prince Eugen. Even as the untimely deadline of the analysis was approaching, Richard remained hopeful, which Klein saw, together with his conduct of the war inside and outside him, as proof that his relationship to the good internal object had been re-secured. Inadvertently, the word chosen for the West German restitution policy, Wiedergutmachung, over and above its horribly banal promise of making it all better again, literally, and in accordance with Klein's Nietzschean understanding of the noble valuation of the internal object, spells out the making good again of objects of repair as preliminary to the onset of the capacity for mourning. Those who lose as winners would turn gravity or the grave around by the industry of their crypto-fetishism. But like Philip K. Dick, who decided, as he remembered it, to major in German in high school shortly after the United States entered World War II, Richard also takes winning as a victim or with the victim to the next level. Both tendencies are shaped toward mourning in the simulacra, by a double exposure to the links and limits of time travel, the inner world as science fiction. <laughs> 